Nehemiah 3, 1 through 32. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emeri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth and son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Mehazebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banan, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Basoda, repaired the gate of Yasana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Repahiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedediah, the son of Haramphah, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malkahajah, the son of Harim, and Hasab, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the dung gate. Malchizah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Harim, repaired the dung gate. He built it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired Rahum, the son of Benai. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler, ruler of half the district of Kelah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite this ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress at the door of the house of Elishib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elishib to the end of the house of Elishib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired behind, beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. 
After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall, wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Imar, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Zechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zeloth, repaired another section. After him, Meshalum, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchiah, uh, one of the goldsmiths repaired as far as the house of the temple, of, excuse me, of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Thank you, Leslie, for reading a number of pages out of the Hebrew phone book. It was not an easy task. So before we get into, you know, like what in the world are we going to get out of this chapter, right? We'll get to that. But as many of you know, uh, yesterday, uh, six-ish in the morning, Israel time, uh, Hamas launched the biggest attack on Israel in 50 years. And uh, I heard this morning, uh, I think they're up to 500, over 500 Israelis dead and 2,000 injured and over 100 taken hostage. And uh, the Hamas terrorists, they fired thousands and thousands of rockets, um, which the Iron Dome couldn't fully keep up with. Uh, they sent dozens and dozens of militants through the southern gates there that separated Israel and Gaza. They came in on motorcycles and pickup trucks. They attacked by sea. They came in on paragliders and came into the southern Israeli towns and just wreaked havoc. And so the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, announced yesterday we are at war, and that's been approved, so Israel is officially uh, at war. And so Hamas is a terrorist organization. They are sponsored primarily by Iran. And Iran, for you uh, Bible prophecy buffs, is known in the Bible as Persia. It's the same geographical location on planet Earth. Persia is modern-day Iran. And so perhaps not coincidentally, our country sent Persia slash Iran $6 billion just a few months ago. And in exchange for five political prisoners. But in addition, Hezbollah, a terrorist organization also sponsored by Iran, is... Uh, located to the north of Israel on its northern border in Lebanon. And so uh, they get about $700 million a year from Iran. And Hezbollah began bombing and exchanging fire with Israel and continues to do so even now. So if you're a prophecy student, you know that Persia figures prominently into the last days scenario in that it's part of an alliance of nations who will invade Israel prior to the second coming of Jesus. And so Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, they want nothing short, just so you understand, to see Israel destroyed and off the face of the earth. That is not a secret. And so you may, you know, you may be going, well, okay, why do you Christians like care so much about Israel and what, what happens over there? Why is that such a big deal? I'm glad you asked that. So 
About 2,000 years, well, 4,000 years actually, 2,000 years before Messiah, 4,000 years ago, God called a guy named Abram from a city called Ur that was located in what's today southern Iraq. And God told this guy to leave his current situation, his current home, and go to another land. And in this other land, this, this land that God promised him, he told Abram that you were going to have descendants that are going to be just numerous, more numerous than the stars of the sky. And so you will have a son, a promised son in your old age. And, and so Abram, 100 years old, and his sweet young wife, Sarai, at 90 years old, had their promised child, Isaac. And God promised that through Abraham and Isaac, and then ultimately Jacob and so on, that would come eventually as a descendant of theirs, the savior of the world. And so indeed, Jesus showed up, the savior, 2,000 years later, born in the town of Bethlehem in Judah in Israel. He would live and then die on a cross and then rise from the dead. And before ascending into heaven, he told his people, go into all the world and make disciples of the whole world. And though uh, his own people, the Jews, his ethnic people, the Jews, largely rejected Jesus, the gospel spread through the Gentiles. And now his disciples have been making disciples for 2,000 years. And so though Israel was effectively destroyed shortly after Jesus ascended back into heaven, and they were scattered into all the world. First the temple destruction in 70 AD and then Hadrian, the Roman emperor, came in and, and just drove everybody out and they were dispersed and had been for close to 1900 years. And so something remarkable happened though approximately 1900 years later. 75 uh, years ago, on May 14th, 1948, Israel was declared a nation again after being a non-existent nation for that nearly 1900 years. And so Jews had begun returning to Israel in the late 1800s in what they called the Aliyah. And Aliyah means rising or ascending and, and is the term used for their ascent. You always go up. To Jerusalem up so they ascend back to their homeland when a Jew who lives anywhere else in the world goes back to Israel even if they've never been there before they're they're making their aliyah their ascent and so the Bible predicted that not only would the Jewish people return to the promised land after being scattered throughout the world for centuries and centuries, but it would then, when it did return, it would be surrounded by peoples who hated them. And Israel would become the center of the world's attention again. The Bible further predicts that there will be a brief peace in the region uh, orchestrated by a powerful political leader. That's coming, that's in the future. And during that time, we believe that there will be a third temple built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that new temple will eventually be desecrated by that world leader who enabled its building in the first place. And so that leader, that event is known in the Bible as the abomination of desolation. And that leader we commonly know as the Antichrist. And so Jesus will return from heaven to rescue the Jews from annihilation as the armies of surrounding peoples close in on Israel and Jerusalem in particular. In that day, Israel, the Bible says, will be saved. And Jesus will establish his rule and his reign upon planet Earth in that day. Let there be light. I was two seconds late. So to sum it up, listen, we are interested in Israel and the Jews because the book that we love and study is primarily given to us through the Jews. 
The Savior we love is Jewish and is born and raised in Israel. The Bible predicts Israel and the Jewish people will be the center of the world's attention in the last days before Messiah returns. The Savior will, the Jewish Savior, who is our Savior, will return to Israel to save the Jews and to set up his kingdom and his rule from Israel in Jerusalem. That's why we're interested in Israel, okay? So yeah, we care about Israel. We do, and you probably should too. Interestingly, Nehemiah was a Jewish man living in Persia, initially Iran. He was serving the king of Iran, Artaxerxes, until God called him to work on God's city for the sake of God's people and for the sake of God's glory. And so, You may be wondering, what is there to be gained out of a chapter <laughs> like we have before us this morning? You know, many commentators just kind of jump over these passages. Uh, but we believe here at Lighthouse, we believe that all Scripture, not most, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, profitable. Profitable that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. So every bit of scripture breathed out by God and is profitable. So the challenge for us this morning in this chapter of a Hebrew phone book is where's the profit? Where's the gold in this here chapter? And so... We will discover, in fact, I just concluded this this morning when I was here earlier. I'm not, we're going to have to do a second uh, Sunday on this chapter, but that's okay. So just to, to, to recap real quick, God's city, Jerusalem, is a dump. The wall is in ruins. God's people are being mocked and ridiculed. They're canceled by YouTube and TikTok and all the rest. It's been that way for years, and then Nehemiah shows up with... Persian captains of the army with him, and he's got authorization letters from the Persian king Artaxerxes to authorize him to do what he wants to do. And first Nehemiah rests for three days, then he secretly inspects the ruins of the wall at night. Doesn't tell anybody what his plans are to this point. Then, at a certain point when he's ready, he calls all the people, the surrounding peoples of God together, and he tells them his plan. He's been called by God, he tells them, to lead them in rebuilding the wall. In effect, he was saying, I'm called by God, and you're called by God, God called me in the Persian palace of King Artaxerxes. God is calling you right now through me. This is God calling you. And they said, we are in. Sign us up. Let's do this thing. So in our chapter, chapter 3, the Hebrew phone book, the work begins. 38 individuals are named specifically. There are many unnamed people that are referred to in our chapter. There are numerous teams of people that have formed to do the work of God, the rebuilding of the wall around God's city. So, so many lessons to be gleaned. Let's at least get through a couple of them this morning. Number one, we are saved to work. We are saved to work. Now, that might land on your ears a little funny. I did not say we are saved by works. I said we are saved to work. Ephesians 2.10, let me prove it to you. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've been saved in Christ for good works. Titus 3.8, 
This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is excellent. God's people being adorned with good works is profitable to them and excellent, meaning it's, it's profitable for everyone. Excellence is typically profitable for everybody. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We are saved to work. This idea is all over the New Testament, but here's what you need to see. When Christians hear the term good works, many think it's referring to the, you know, the spiritual kind of works. You know, it's the, it's the stuff like praying and witnessing and tithing and digging wells in third world countries and, and those kind of things. And they separate their lives into, into two distinct categories. The, the sacred, that's, that's the prayer and the tithing and the digging the wells for third world people. And then there's the secular, that's the stuff, the other stuff. So, so certain stuff I do is sacred. I go to church, I worship God, I go on mission trips, I serve in a ministry at church. The other stuff, pardon me, is secular. I go to work, I pay the bills, I take care of the yard, that's secular. And so in this, this kind of thinking, which is unbiblical, by the way, this, in this kind of thinking, then, then we live a secular life and we sprinkle some good works into it. We sprinkle some spiritual into our secular. Like we sprinkle some salt and pepper on our burger or whatever. Our life is, the meat of our life is secular, but I'm gonna sprinkle some spiritual in there. I serve the Lord, we may think. When I, when I went to Guatemala and, and helped, you know, pay for and dig that water well in that village, but now I'm back in my secular life at my job or in my cubicle or wherever it is. So in, in our chapter, we have people who have committed to working on a building project and every day they would wake up early, they would go to work, they would dig holes and remove debris and move materials from one place to the other and set stones and hang gates and generally get dirty all day long. Now that doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? But it absolutely is. Think about this, the Bible begins with the book of Genesis, which recounts for us the creation narrative, the, the creating work of God. For six days, God worked to create everything that there is, the heavens and the earth, and then the earth was formless and void. It was just a mess and chaotic, and then God went to work to bring out, uh, you know, order out of that chaos, and he began to form the formlessness, and he created the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures of the sea, and finally, he created the creature that would uniquely bear his image, and that would be man. God created man, male and female version. Somebody, is that for the females? Okay, I'm, I'm with you, because it's all good. I'm, not, I'm pro man, I'm pro woman, so it's, it's. But listen to this, Genesis 2-2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his work that he had done. Is that, is that sinking in? The point is clear, God works. God works. Therefore, it is godly to work. Amen. It's a tough sell. <laughs> I, could just, I could just feel that like, People pushing back in your heart and mind, like, I don't know, man. <laughs> you don't know where I work. <laughs> Listen, let, let me put a, put a finer point on it. It is godly to work when the work is done to the glory of God. 
So I've, I've noticed over the years that, that Christians, a lot of Christians, not you guys, but a lot of Christians have, a, have kind of a dim view of work, of labor. And they think it as kind of unholy, secular, as I mentioned, or even beneath them, like I deserve better than this. Now, they probably wouldn't say that, but they feel it, maybe they've thought it. But they work in a secular environment, uh, environment among unsaved people, and F-bombs are dropping at times, and, and uh, office politics and relational drama happens, and you know, and just the stuff that happens in a workplace. People gripe and complain all day long, and, and they think, God surely hasn't called me to this. I mean, that, that can't be right, can it? Well, <laughs> I hate to burst your bubble, but let, let me give you just an example, a couple. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted and nasty and perverse and use your own adjective, generation in the midst. I want you to be in the midst of the F-bombs and the other bombs and the relational drama. And I want you to not complain while you're in the midst of that. I want you to be different because everybody else is complaining and you're going to be able to shine like a beacon light in the midst of that darkness. What about this? Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily, work heartily. This, is, this is, should be on your desk. Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Give it all you got at that secular workplace. Ephesians 6 says you should even give it all you got when the boss isn't around. Why? Because in reality, your boss is Jesus. That's why. And he's watching you, and he sees the effort you're giving. And if you lift your eyes from trying to please your boss to trying to please Jesus, you'll not have a problem putting in a good, robust, hard day's work. You are working for the Lord. You are serving the Lord there at your secular workplace, wherever you are at. You're serving Jesus at that restaurant or that retail store or on the dairy that you work or wherever. And Jesus will reward you according to Colossians 3.24. Part of your, your inheritance is being built up as you work for the Lord's glory at your place of employment. That's what's being said. Like you are building up an account. When you go in with your eyes on Jesus and do your job unto the Lord, it's as if you went on the mission field to serve the Lord in the mission field. God doesn't make this differentiation. The good works that God has called you to include not only the mission trip to the third world, but the daily trip that you make to your workplace. So, question. Do you have more ordinary days or more extraordinary days in your life? I'll answer it for you. Ordinary. Because if you had more extraordinary days, by definition, they wouldn't be extraordinary. <laughs> Gotcha. So, <laughs> on most days, most people, they'll get out of bed, and today, sadly, they'll grab their phone, check the weather, maybe check their socials or whatever. Bad idea. But perhaps they brush their teeth, they jump on the scale, and then they deal with the, depending on what the scale said, either depression or elation, you know. <laughs> and. And if you're, you're a smart believer, a mature believer, you're good, you've got a little discipline dialed in in the morning to be in the word and prayer for a few minutes and get your heart set on God. And you jump in the car, you drive through Starbucks, you get a bucket of coffee, uh, you go to work where you deal with the aforementioned F-bombs and all the rest that happens at work. 
and you do your job, you head home, you're a little too tired to cook, you drive through Chick-fil-A, get a chicken sandwich, waffle fries, you go home, dog barfed on the carpet, you clean it up, you're not all that hungry anymore, so you force that chicken sandwich, those waffle fries down, and then you watch a little news, you get upset, you get anxious watching the news, so you dial in a little Netflix, you know, you binge a little, take the edge off of that anger, whatever, and you go to bed, and you get up and you do it again. Most of the days we live out are going to be kind of ordinary. There will be some extraordinary ones, and we're going to see that. There's been, there, there will be some extraordinary days in Jerusalem as we're going to see revival break out for a, for a brief period of time in the back half of the book. But most of our days are going to be kind of ordinary days. It's going to be the mundane, the daily stuff. I don't know who said it, but someone said, you know, the problem with life is that it's, it's just so daily. <laughs> so that being said, wise is the Christian who learns the lesson that God taught Elijah. Elijah, who is a part of some just dramatic manifestations of God's power and presence. I mean, incredible things happen in his life. But after he challenged and defeated the prophets of Baal at, at Mount Carmel, uh, he fled from Jezebel to a cave in the wilderness. And some, many actually, commentators believe it was the very spot where Moses hid in the cleft of the rock, a cave in the side of the cliff there, and God passed by Moses. So many think this is exactly where Elijah was. Be that as it may, the Lord spoke to Elijah and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, well, I've been super zealous for you, God, but the rest of Israel, well, they've forsaken the covenant, and, and they're all just a bunch of spiritual losers, man. I'm the only one, the only, you know, guy left. And Lord says, well, come out of that cave and stand on the side of the mountain. And Elijah did, and the Lord passed by, and a wind, this incredible wind just, whoosh, just blew on the side of the mountain, even broke rocks apart. It was so powerful. And then it says there in 1 Kings 19 that the Lord wasn't in the wind. And then a massive earthquake happened right on the heels of that wind, and the Bible says the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And then a fire, just a, a raging fire just combusted in front of Elijah on that hill, and the Bible says the Lord wasn't in the fire. All of these, these spectacular displays in nature, they were of God, <laughs> but they weren't God. Finally, there was a still small voice. There was a, a gentle whisper. That was God. That was him. Who would have thought of finding God there? In, in, the, in the small voice, the, the small whisper. Almighty God found where? Who would have thought of finding the God of the universe in a gentle, internal whisper instead of a dramatic external manifestation. Many are still looking for God in those dramatic external manifestations. That's where God is. That's where he is. Young Christians are particularly susceptible to this. Certainly, God does do dramatic things on occasion. Yes, he does. But we don't want to chase dramatic things or think that God is in the dramatic thing because God himself is with us and in us and speaking to us moment by moment on any given day. And you have to tune down. You have to tune, you have to tune out the noise and tune down to hear the gentle whisper of Almighty God inside of you. 
And here's the kicker. When you, when you finally do quiet yourself and tune into the voice of God, your ordinary days, oh, they will look ordinary to people on the outside, but they will become extraordinary. Because all of a sudden, you're going to see the work of the Spirit right in front of you. God will prompt you to pray for that person in the next cubicle. He will, he will prompt you to head over and give an encouraging word to your supervisor, whatever. All of a sudden, you are tuned in. My pastor used to say to the radio station, WGOD, tune in your station to WGOD every day. When you do that, when you do what you do for the glory of your God, then whatever you do becomes sacred and special and meaningful. Washing the dishes, <laughs> doing housework. That's not hyperbolic, that, that's true. All of Christ for all of life. Whatever you do, we do unto the glory of God. It's all sacred, that's the idea. So we have been saved in Christ Jesus for good works, which includes digging wells in third wheel countries. Third, third wheel, <laughs> third world countries. Sorry, third world countries, my bad. You've got it hard enough and here I can't, I can't even pronounce. So, but not only that, digging ditches for your company. It's, it's all sacred. We're saved to work for the glory of God. Think about this. Jesus was how old when he performed his first miracle? Anybody? 30, he was 30 years old when he changed the water into wine there in Cana of Galilee, which means he lived how many years? 30 years, and he lived three more years, three years in which he did a lot of miracles and, and so on. So 30 years of his life, he spent doing primarily, once he got old enough, what did he spend doing? Working. He was the son of Joseph, or the, you know, I guess stepson technically, of Joseph, a carpenter. So he went to work every day, and could you imagine somebody who maybe figured out, oh, that's the son of God over there. Hey, son of God, why in the world are you getting dirty on this job site? What in the world are you doing? And Jesus would say, I'm glorifying my father in heaven right now. He wouldn't say, well, I got, I got 30 years of secular life I got to deal with, and then. Listen, carpenters had to work hard. They would create farm tools like carts and plows and winnowing forks, and they would build parts of houses, you know, door frames and uh, posts and beams, and they would make furniture, and they'd build boats and all of that, and they would use axes and mallets and saws and plates. That's what Jesus did for, for the first 90% of his life. Ordinary. Ordinary work is sacred. And it's extraordinary when it's done for the glory of God. All right. Let's, yeah, number two, darn it. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna try and land this thing real quickly here. So just to encourage you, God, God remembers your work. Now that, that's just kind of obvious application from the chapter, right? Like, okay, these are real people. That maybe the first thing we should think when we read a chapter like that, where you have specific names, is like, okay, those are real humans that really did that stuff, really did the work, and they got their name in the Bible. Okay, so God apparently cares uh, about individuals. And, and, and he cares about what people do for him. And indeed, the New Testament bears that out. Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. God's not he would be unjust if he, if he overlooked it, if he turned his head and didn't see you do that thing that you did to serve him. But he does see it. And he does take note of it. And it is recorded eternally. 
And it may not make it into the Bible, but it's going to make it into another eternal book. There are things you do for the Lord that no one sees. God does see. There are things that you do for him that perhaps no one appreciates. Maybe nobody has ever said thank you for that thing that you've done or been doing. Listen, God appreciates it. Everything you do for him is remembered. Everything you do for him will be rewarded. Those things will go toward your eternal inheritance. 1 Peter 1.3, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, waiting in heaven for you. Christian, everything you do that's coming from your desire to glorify your God is going to receive reward. When you consecrate your life to God to serve him, your life will not be wasted. It will be invested. You're investing your life. Jesus suggested in the Gospels that even a cold cup of water given to someone in Jesus' name will not fail to receive reward. I mean, a simple act of kindness and care. And let's face it, I mean, there are some tasks and some needs that are less desirable than others, but I believe that that those areas, that God God is just, he's gonna properly reward people. I mean, it's like nobody's gonna get gypped, right? And and because you look around, we'll get, get on this next week, but there's different gates to the city, right, that they're building. And so, and so the people, the, these different teams are going to the various different gates. Now, if you're on the team that was assigned to the dung gate, like you got to be thinking, that does not sound good. Does not sound like the primo spot to be. <laughs> I was FaceTiming with my son and my granddaughter, Mia, a few days ago, and Mia's in the bathtub, and Luke's, you know, letting her splash around, and we're talking, and Mia's just having a blast, and all of a sudden, she gets kind of serious, and she's just holding on to the side of the bathtub, and she's looking up at her dad, and looking at her grandpa on the phone, and all of a sudden, these little brown balls come out (laughs) of her behind into the water. And Luke is like, Mia! And Mia's got this look like, I don't know what to do at this point. I don't know. It just kind of happened. Listen, parenting, at least for the first two years, you're working at the Dawn Gate, right? (laughs) It's not, you know, like the most. If you work in the nursery, you got a lot of dung going on. So, point is, God sees all of that. He knows what you do. He knows you're, you're not proud and unwilling to, you know, to be a part of maybe a, a less, you know, known ministry or less, you know, whatever, desirable. The Lord takes note of all that. He goes, oh man, I see that. I got some enthusiastic dungators, man. They are getting reward for that. And we'll close here in this last thought is that pride, pride on the other hand, is gonna rob you from serving. And it's it's just gonna rob you. A life that that isn't given in service to the Lord is a life that's not invested in eternity. It's just that simple. Nehemiah 3.5, next to them the Toachites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Whoa. The Tekoites or Tekoites, they had some nobles among them, elites in their midst. Every society does. 
And you know, they had money, they had status, they were the religious and political influencers, power players of their communities. And they, they probably listened to Nehemiah's pitch and his story and his vision. And uh, they, they saw the other people getting on board with Nehemiah and they decided not to do it. Nope, not gonna do it, why? Well, just says they wouldn't stoop to serve. Perhaps they thought, you know that Nehemiah guy, who's, who does he think he is coming over here from Persia? We don't like his kind in these parts. Who does he think he is coming over here thinking he has the plan to fix this mess? People love to criticize the leader, that's for sure. Maybe they, weren't, maybe they just weren't comfortable getting dirty. They were too precious for that. No, I'm not, I ain't going to get dirty. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that on the very night before Jesus died on the cross, that he, he took a towel, the waistband around his robe, put it around his arm, and he stooped with a water basin and washed his disciples' feet, and even washed the feet of the one who would be possessed by Satan and would betray him. Listen, if you're wealthy and you got a bunch of money, good works are the antidote to a wasted life. A lot of rich people waste their life. Gaining the whole world, forfeiting their soul. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The danger of, of amassing riches is you, you begin to be deceived into thinking that this is life. It's the, it's the nice houses and the cars and the, you know, the, that's not life. And so Paul says, or the Holy Spirit through Paul, no, hey, tell those who's, who've got a lot of money, not a sin to have a lot of money. Not. But if you're wise, you'll be rich in good works. You'll be so grounded in Jesus that you don't have a problem stooping to clean some people's feet or to dig a hole in the ground to build this thing that we're doing or whatever. Listen, Jesus continues to serve us. The Bible says he ever lives. He's living right now to make intercession. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. I don't know of any promise in the Bible that gives me more confidence that I'm going to make it than that. Jesus is praying for me. Not only that, but he's preparing a place. He's working for you. Preparing a place for you that where he is, you will be with him also. And he's preparing us for the place as we speak. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the, um, the richness and just the simplicity of the lessons that can come out of a chapter like this. And, and so, Lord, as we just kind of move into a time of worship and communion, and I pray that we would not be stubborn with the Holy Spirit and resistant 
to the work that he wants to do. Because Lord, as I mentioned, not only are you preparing a place for us, you're preparing us for the place. So even now, if we've been proud and haughty and critical and aloof and distant and, and all this stuff, instead of getting in there, getting our hands dirty, being joyful in our jobs, being engaged in our church, then Lord, change our hearts. Knowing that by serving, we are we are not wasting our lives, we are investing our lives. And in that day when we see you face to face, we will know that we have been wise in serving you. All the things that we did for the glory of our God, for the good of his people. So, Lord, I pray that you would grant us repentance this morning and that hearts would be humble. Say, God, forgive me. Renew me. And, Lord, I, I just want to consecrate my life to you anew and afresh this morning. Live out my life for you, whatever that means. If that's just a, just a big attitude adjustment, going into work tomorrow morning. Big, big adjustment in what comes out of my mouth while I'm at work. Big adjustment in my attitude. And instead of bitterness towards my boss, there's going to be gratitude towards my ultimate boss, Jesus. So Spirit of God, search us, see if there's any way, wicked way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. If you are a Christian here this morning, um, you are invited to make your way to a communion table and you can do that right now. If you're not a Christian here this morning, by that I mean you've never asked Jesus Christ be the Lord and Savior of your life, I'm gonna invite you to do that right now. You need to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, and if you will profess him, confess him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. And if you're ready to do that, I want you right where you're seated right now to pray a prayer. Pray this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you now just as I am. I believe in you, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose up from the grave, and now I put my faith in you. Wash away my sins and make me brand new. I give you my life. In your name I pray, amen.